Turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, uh, words will be on the screen behind me. You can also find the scripture in uh, the sermon guide, which you can find on the church app, and that will help you to listen along in the sermon. Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait, here, wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Years ago, when we moved into our home that we currently live in, I noticed when we first got to the house and we're getting things situated, in the front of our house on the right side, next to the front wall of the house, there was a large hole in the ground. And it became evident this was a hole that some animal had burrowed. And as we got to know the neighbors and started talking, and I said, yeah, there's this big animal hole in the front of our house by the wall. And they're like, oh, yeah, just an armadillo. It's like, oh, great. We get a pet armadillo for free. We didn't even negotiate that in the house deal. And we get this wonderful pet armadillo. No big deal. Well, more conversations happened with neighbors, and you know, as I was getting, we were getting to know them. And I remember having a conversation with a neighbor, and I said, yeah, we've got this hole in the front of our house, and it's a... It's an armadillo hole, and, and the neighbor's eyes got big. And he looked at me, and he said, oh, that's trouble. And I said, what's the trouble? 
He said, those armadillos will burrow under your house, under the foundation, and the foundation of your house can crack. So cute little pet armadillo went to dollar signs in my head pretty quickly. Foundations are important. A crack in a foundation jeopardizes what's on top of it. Now, we talk about foundations with buildings, but foundations are also critical to relationships. The foundation of your marriage, the foundation of your friendships, the foundation of your relationship with your kids. These are all critical, and if there's a crack in the foundation, it can jeopardize the relationship. But even more important than the foundation of your human relationships is the foundation of your relationship with God. What is your relationship with God founded upon? That's the question that Exodus 24 answers, where the covenant is confirmed, the covenant being a sacred relationship established by God with his people. What's the foundation of it? First, forgiveness. Notice the progression of what happens in verses three through eight. It's quite a scene. Verse three, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now, what's the distinction there between words of the Lord and all the rules? Well, most likely that's referring to the Ten Commandments, and all the detailed laws of the Ten Commandments applied that follows. So Exodus chapters 20 to 23, those are read to the people. And how do they respond? Into verse three, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then what's the next thing Moses does? Verse four, he rises, he builds an altar and puts 12 pillars around it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So altar representing God, his people gathered around it. And then he assigns some of the young men to make an offering. Burnt offerings, peace offerings. Then what happens next? Well, he takes the blood from the sacrificed animals and he throws it on the altar. And then, verse seven, once again, he reads the book of the covenant or he reads God's words and God's laws to the people again. And once again, they respond and say, we will do it all and we will be obedient. And then verse eight, Moses takes the blood and he throws it on them. Now, this is a remarkable scene. Just to sum it up, God's word is spoken to them. They say, we will obey Moses sacrifices animals, takes the blood, throws it on the altar, reads God's word to him again. They said, we will obey. And then Moses throws blood on them. An odd set of circumstances that on the surface don't make complete sense. Why? Well, before I answer that directly, remember what burnt offerings and peace offerings were. An animal died in the place of the worshiper. The worshiper was sinful, deserving of death, but in God's love and God's mercy, an animal died in the place of the worshiper. Why was blood shed? Well, Hebrews 9.22 says there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Why blood? 
because life is in the blood. The wages of sin is death. And so blood spilled represents death, right? The penalty of sin. Now, why did Moses throw the blood twice? The first time on the altar, the second time on the people. Well, he throws it on the altar first because first and foremost, God's righteous wrath on sin needed to be satisfied. And the blood was a sign that God's wrath had been satisfied on the substitute in the place of the worshiper. Then when he takes the blood and throws it on the people, that is a sign that resulting from God's wrath being satisfied that they were included in the covenant, that they had right relationship with God. Now, ultimately, the blood of an animal could never take away sin. Right? So the blood of the substitute was pointing forward to the ultimate substitute, Jesus Christ. Who would shed blood once and for all? Listen to what Jesus says as he describes his sacrifice, as he's instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples in Matthew 26. He says this, drink of it, the cup, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant confirmed in Exodus 24, the blood that Jesus was about to shed, which is poured out, poured out, thrown on the people, same idea here, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, back to the question, why is this series of events odd and why doesn't it make sense on the surface? Because after God's law is read to the people, what do they say? We will obey. We will obey. Then why does God provide a sacrifice right after that? They said, we're, we're going to obey. There will be no disobedience. So why does God provide a sacrifice? Because he knew their best intentions would fail miserably. So he provided the blood of a substitute to be ready for every lapse along the way that they would have. In other words, God knew that there was going to be a massive gap between their promise and their performance. And God knows today that there is a massive gap between your promise and your performance. The question is, how do you respond to that gap? And how does God respond to that gap? Let's start with how you respond. When there is a gap between what you promise or what you commit and what you actually do, you respond in one of two ways you either start to question your promise or your commitment, right? You say, wow, if I really loved Christ, if I really was committed to following God's ways, then why did I would never do something like that? So you begin to question the promise. Or if you don't question the promise or the commitment, then you begin to reframe your failure to perform through hiding, through defending your sin, through justifying it, through minimizing it, because if you're not gonna question your promise or commitment, then guess what? Your performance needs to match up. And if it in actuality doesn't, you'll defend, hide, minimize to get it to match up. Both of those responses to the gap between promise and performance lead to two very bad places. You either feel like a complete hypocrite or you, or you feel like a total fraud. Now, how does God 
respond to the gap between your promise and performance. Number one, he's not surprised. He's not surprised. He expects it. He expected Israel, even though they, they promised, we will obey. Notice in verse eight, when they say the second time, we will obey, we will do all you say, Lord. Moses immediately throws the blood on them. They didn't even have a chance to fail on the promise yet. You see, God responds to the gap with provision. He expects it, he anticipates it, and he provides Jesus Christ for the gap between your promise and your performance. If you have children, have you ever left home on a family outing on a really cold day? And you say to your kids, it's really cold. You need a jacket. Go get a jacket from your room. Have you ever had a child say, I don't need a jacket. It's not cold. I'll be just fine. I don't need a jacket. No, no, it's really cold out there. You need a jacket. No, 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 no. I'll be fine. He's okay. You go into your child's room. You get a jacket. Unbeknownst to the child, you put it in the car. What happens halfway through that outing? Mommy, daddy, it's really cold out here. Here, son, here's your jacket. Provision. God responds to the gap between your promise and your performance with provision. The provision of Jesus Christ. So what should be your response to the gap? Own the promise, own the failure, and lean into the provision of Jesus. Your failure to perform doesn't mean that your promise or commitment is lacking. Nor does your promise and commitment mean that you will never fail. So instead of falling into the place of feeling like a hypocrite or feeling like a complete and total fraud, lean into the provision of Jesus. Because God anticipates the gap and has provided Christ for it. Your relationship with God is founded upon forgiveness. It is not founded upon your promise. It's not founded upon your performance. It is founded upon forgiveness in the gap between your promise and performance which is how life goes in a sinful world. And this applies to human relationships. The foundation of your marriage is not perfect performance. The foundation of your marriage is forgiveness. The foundation of your friendships is not perfect performance. It is forgiveness. The foundation with your children is not perfect performance. It is forgiveness. And oftentimes when you find in your human relationships that your foundation is performance, that's a crack in the foundation. And relationships start to get jeopardized. Oftentimes when that's happening, happening horizontally, 
It's a sign that functionally you're relating to God through your performance or through your promise rather than through his forgiveness. So what is your relationship with God founded upon? First, forgiveness. But second, revelation. Revelation. Throughout this passage, Moses and the people are responding to God's word. They're responding to God's instruction. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They went up the mountain. Why? Why'd they go up the mountain? Because in verse 1, he called them up the mountain. They didn't decide, hey, we're going to go up this mountain. No, God called them up. They were responding. And what did they see when they went up? Verse 10. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. Now, lots of questions about this verse. Did they really see God? And if they really did see God, why didn't they die? Sinful person in the presence of a holy God. Well, verse 11 confirms that they really did see God. Verse 11, and he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. In his divine wrath, he should have, but he didn't. Why? Well, again, what exactly did they see? It says they saw the pavement underneath his feet. God the Father doesn't have feet. God the Father doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. Notice in verse 10 what it says. They saw the God of Israel. All throughout this chapter, Moses has referred to God as, in your Bibles, Lord, all capital letters. That's Yahweh. That's the personal covenant name of God that refers to God the Father. Could it be here that it speaks not of Yahweh, but of the God of Israel, because this is an appearance of Jesus Christ before he permanently put on a body and came into this world. We've seen that so far in Exodus with the angel. Right? These, what we would call pre-incarnate, pre-incarnation appearances of Jesus. And if that's so, that's why they didn't die. Because Jesus is the one that ushers us into God's presence. Now, how do they respond when God reveals himself? Into verse 11. They beheld God and ate and drank. Eating and drinking is actually very common throughout the scriptures when it talks about a relationship with God. Oftentimes, relationship with God is framed up as sharing a meal with God. We see Jesus when he came, God in the flesh, and he talked about his kingdom being one of eating and drinking, of a great banquet. We see in Revelation when Jesus returns, there will be a feast, right? Eating and drinking with God is a sign of friendship and belonging with God. And that's what they did. They beheld him and they ate and they drank. Now, you may read this and go, that's great. They got this amazing vision of God and they responded to it. But what about me? What about us? We don't get that kind of vision. How does God reveal himself to us? Verse 12. 
the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. God reveals himself to you in a more powerful way. His words were written down here in Exodus 24. It's the beginning of the Old Testament being written. God reveals himself to you through his written word. You don't have to depend on a supernatural vision where you see him and hear from him audibly and then wonder, did I hear that right? Did I remember that right? Have I distorted that? No, God says, I'm gonna give you my words written that you have with you. And that's more powerful than a vision of me. How do we know that? So Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ, a disciple, had a very similar experience to Moses and the 70 elders here in Exodus 24. It's called in the New Testament, the transfiguration. Where Peter and James and John are taken up into glory. They see a radiant, glorified picture of Jesus Christ. They hear God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. They heard God's audible voice. And do you know what Peter says about that experience in 2 Peter chapter 1? Listen to this. Verses 19 to 21, Peter says, after describing that amazing vision, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Every time you read your Bible, God reveals himself to you. Supernaturally, powerfully through the Holy Spirit. Every time you hear the Bible preached or taught, God reveals himself to you through his written word. We have the powerful written word of God and we respond the same way to God revealing himself through his word that Moses and the 70 elders responded. We eat and drink. It's called the Lord's Supper. We eat and drink in response to God's revealed word to us. The Lord's Supper, a sign that we have fellowship with God and right relationship with him. We are responders we are never initiators with God. We respond. He speaks, we respond. That's why every worship service that we have, there's always a call to worship at the beginning. Why do we do that? Because we don't drum our own hearts up to worship God. We respond to his word speaking to us. And so the call to worship is him speaking and we respond. We're responders. God speaks, we respond. Your relationship with God is founded upon his revelation. It's not founded upon your words to him or your initiative towards him. Actually, when your relationship with God functionally is, is founded upon your words to him or your initiation towards him, oftentimes what happens is we begin to, if that's the case, we begin to fabricate a God 
because we speak words and want to hear the words that we want to hear. We're responders. God is the first word. We are never the first word. Let me give you an example of that. Because when we look back on when we learned how to talk as an infant, because that memory is so far behind us, and because we don't understand the process of how it happened that we began to talk, we just assume that we took initiative in beginning to speak. But that's not the case, right? Language, we just look at children, and it's clear. Language is spoken into an infant. The infant hears language spoken over and over, and syllable by syllable, the child begins to answer with mama or dada or bottle or yes or no. But the child's word is never the first word. I mean, we put it down in the scrapbooks like that. But no, the child is just answering to language already spoken into him or her. And that's how it is with us and God. God speaks into us through his word. We respond, we answer. We're always answering. We're always responding. We're never initiating. God always initiates. And that's why we have at the church a community Bible reading plan. This is not a plan that is something that you use to make yourself feel good about your walk with Christ. Like, oh, this is a way that I can read my Bible and feel like I'm actually in good relationship with God. No, this is simply a plan so that we can be responders. And that community Bible reading plan is in the church app at the bottom. If you hit Bible and then you hit the little calendar icon, it'll bring up the, the reading for the day. That is simply that we as a, a people would be responders. God's the first word. We are always responding. What is your relationship with God founded upon? First, forgiveness. Second, revelation. And finally, mediation. Verse 15, Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. Verse 16, on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Verse 18, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was up the on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Only Moses went up into the cloud. The elders, Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, Hur, they all stayed behind. Moses goes up and down the mountain a lot. It's hard to keep track of the number of times he goes up and down Mount Sinai, as we've seen. He is moving between heaven and earth. He's moving between a holy God and a sinful people. He is the mediator that's going between God and his people. You and I are not Moses in this story. We're the people at the base of the mountain. Moses is the mediator that is going between God and his people. But Moses wasn't perfect. He was a mere man. And as we'll go on, he, he failed to perform and failed to follow God's ways. The 40 days and 40 nights that he was on the mountain propels us forward to another time that another mediator was in the desert 40 days and 40 nights. And that's Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter four. It says he was in the desert 40 days, 40 nights being tempted by the devil. Moses was the one that confirmed the covenant in Exodus 24. Jesus is the one that kept the covenant in Matthew four. 
He's the one that has perfectly kept the covenant in our place and perfectly endured all the penalties of breaking the covenant in our place. Years ago, I was a, when I was working as a young adult in Charlotte, North Carolina, one of my friends, her father was a three-star general in the army. That's a really, really high ranking. Her father, her mother, they lived on a large brick home on the Potomac River, provided by the government. He was up there. And so my friend decided one year, it was right around 2000, that she was gonna organize a trip for us, group of friends to go up to DC for the new year, New Year's Eve. So we went up, we stayed at her parents' house, and we got this unforgettable tour of the White House. Now, I don't know how it happens today, but because of all we're in the midst of and what we've been through, but back then, you know, you, the masses would line up and you'd get this tour of the White House that was very, very general basic tour. You'd see some stuff, but I mean, you barely got into it. Well, we got a behind the scenes tour. So I got to walk into the Oval Office. That's the formal working office of the President of the United States. Not only that, I got to walk around his desk, that iconic desk where the President sits and signs executive orders. And I was walking in and around the President of the United States desk. And do you know why I had that kind of access? Because I was a civil engineer in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I had my badge to prove it. And they said, boy, you're a civil engineer in Charlotte? By all means, come into the Oval Office. I said, hold on, let me, let me show you my resume. And they looked at my resume and they went, wow, that's an impressive resume. You need to come and you're gonna get access to the Oval Office. Of course not, of course not. The only reason I had that kind of access is because of the merits of General Noonan. For those couple of hours, I was standing on his merits. You and I never stand alone before God. You are always standing on the merits of someone else. If you're standing on the merits of Adam, our first parent, then you inherit a broken relationship with God. If you're standing on the merits of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, then you inherit a reconciled relationship with God. Now, why is this important to understand? Because when you understand that your relationship with God is founded upon Jesus Christ, the mediator. Then the gap between your promise and your performance no longer dictates your relationship with God. If the gap between your promise and your performance is narrow, you don't boast as though you've done something to secure your relationship with God. If the gap between your promise and performance is wide, then you don't despair as though you've done something to threaten your relationship with God. 
your relationship with God is founded upon his forgiveness, his revelation, and his mediation through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess that the gap between our promise and our performance, it is wide. And we lament that oftentimes it makes us feel like hypocrites and like frauds and pretenders. And yet, would you remind us this morning that you are not surprised by the gap, that you anticipate the gap, that you expect the gap, and that you've provided in the gap your son, Jesus. So would you help us to own the promise, own our promises and own our failures and lean into the provision of Jesus? Father, remind us that we are, we're responders. We don't initiate our relationship with you. We simply respond. And you've revealed yourself through your word. You're constantly speaking to us, constantly pursuing us by your Spirit. Would you empower us to respond? Father, our relationship with you is one that's founded upon grace and grace alone. Help us to sing now as responders. In Jesus' name we pray.